the word purgatory comes from the Latin pagare, from which we get our word purge. Pagare simply means, it's an infinitive, means to purge or to purify. Roman Catholic doctrine, purgatory is the place where the souls of the dead are purified of remaining sins. That begs an important question. How is it the believer in Jesus has remaining sin? Because, as we saw last week, the work of Christ is insufficient to remove your sin. You must do your part. Full saving grace is to be earned, so said the church. Catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as quote, a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. In other words, there are still sins clinging to you. Therefore, purgatory is a place of suffering, a kind of way station um, on the way to heaven where believers pay for unpunished or unrepentant sin. Maybe, maybe you felt Sorry, but not sorry enough. Maybe you sinned and you forgot to ask forgiveness. Don't don't miss that you must pay for your sin to achieve, that is to earn, the holiness necessary to enter heaven. You say, but I, I thought Jesus paid for my sin. I thought He bore my punishment. Apparently not completely. This thought drove Martin Luther crazy in his early days as an Augustinian monk. He desperately wanted to know his sins were indeed forgiven and that he would be accepted by God. The thought of sin and the satisfaction necessary to find forgiveness hounded him. Therefore, Luther kept his vows and pursued the monastic life with an intensity far beyond uh, the already strict requirements. He, in his own words, he wore himself out with prayer and fasting, described himself as emaciated. He wore out his superiors with excessive and interminable confessions. I, I told you last week he would spend hours in confession uh, only to return shortly thereafter. His confessor, Johann Staupitz, became exasperated with him, ordering him to leave the confessional booth and not return until he had done something worth confessing. Go sin. Luther wrote, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Although my brothers in the monastery, all the brothers in my monastery who knew me will bear me out. If, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with my vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. Even these superhuman efforts did not bring the peace that his tormented soul desired. When he said his first mass, he was, quote, utterly st- stupefied and terror-stricken at the thought of standing before the Almighty God. Although his father was present, whom he desperately wanted to please, Luther ran out of the church. Listen, the whole idea of a righteous God who required righteousness from people actually caused Luther to say, 
I hated this righteous God. Back to purgatory. It is suggested, the concept goes all the way back to the early Christians who were known to pray for departed saints. If a dead believer immediately goes to heaven, they ask, why pray for departed saints? What did they pray for? Others suggest the official doctrine of purgatory came in the 6th century under Pope Gregory the Great. Regardless, the Second Council of Lyon in 1274 said, we believe that the souls by the purifying compensation are purged after death. Notice those words, purifying compensation. In other words, there is something we need to do to pay for our sins and salvation. Sins not completely cleansed will be paid for by the sufferer in purgatory. Now, just in case you think purgatory is an outdated doctrine held only in the Dark Ages, Second Vatican Council in 1962 said, the doctrine of purgatory clearly demonstrates that even when the guilt of sin has been taken away, punishment for it or the consequences of it may remain to be expiated. That means expiation, as Dr. says, your sins have been removed, but they need, may need to be expiated or cleansed. They often are. In fact, in purgatory, the souls of those who died in the charity or love of God and truly repentant, but who have not made satisfaction with adequate penance for their sins and omissions are cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away the debt. Purgatory is payment for debt. Now, you should know time in purgatory can be remarkably reduced in a number of different ways. First, suffering in the present is one way to receive the grace of cleansing. So when you, when you suffer here, you won't have to suffer as much there. Therefore, it's taught that many Christian martyrs have immediately bypassed purgatory and gone straight to heaven. They, they, they paid the ultimate price, you see, but, <laughs> but for most of us, it's purgatory. Second, time spent in purgatory can be shortened by prayers and masses said by the living for the dead. Such a mass is called a requiem mass. According to the Council of Florence in the 15th century, about 100 years before Luther, if they have died repentant for their sins and having the love of God, but have not made satisfaction, we'll keep coming to that word, have not made satisfaction for the things that they have done or omitted by fruits worthy of penance, then their souls after death are cleansed by the punishment of purgatory. But, but, but the suffrages of the faithful still living, that you and me are, are, are efficacious. That means effective in bringing them relief from such punishment. Namely, what are those suffrages? The, the, the sacrifice of the mass, prayers and almsgiving and other works of, works of piety, which in accordance with the 
designation of the church are customarily offered by the faithful for each other, especially dead people. So, 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 so catch that. What are those works of piety? They are, are, are the mass and prayers and giving works of piety by the living, which can effectively cleanse the dead in their punishment of purgatory. But that takes so much effort. And so, another way to shorten your or another, another's time in purgatory is through the use of indulgences. This became particularly popular during the Middle Ages, and, and they were largely responsible for the Protestant Reformation. An indulgence is, quote, the remission or limited release from the temporal punishments one must suffer in this life or in purgatory for the sins a person has committed. It's, a, it's a, 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 a remission or limited release. This is how it worked. When Jesus lived on this earth by his life and death, he was really, really good. Don't know if you know that. Really, really good. So good that he stored up in heaven what is called a treasury of merit. Basically, Jesus earned extra brownie points. And other really good godly saints added to that treasury, that storehouse as well. And those points are available for purchase at the discretion of the church for purchase. So the, 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 the Pope, usually to finance a war or, or a building project such as St. Peter's Basilica, would grant the sale of indulgences. In fact, there's one kind of indulgence only occasionally offered. It's called a plenary indulgence, which would not just reduce your time in purgatory, but it would eliminate it altogether because it removes the, all the punishment for your sins. Plenary indulgence, but alas, those are only for past sins. So any sins committed subsequent to said purchase will require further purchases. Incredible. Well, Johann Tetzel, among others, would travel from town to town selling such indulgences, raising money for the Catholic Church, re reducing time in purgatory for you or a deceased loved one. When Tetzel traveled near Wittenberg in 1517, he infuriated a German monk named Martin Luther. Luther subsequently posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. In the document, to be clear, um, Luther was not leaving the church. He was simply challenging what he saw as an abuse uh, of indulgences. You see, it wasn't really until 13 years later that he abandoned his belief in indulgences and purgatory in a published work called Denial of Purgatory. As you well know, this month then marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Luther posted his 95 Theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. So this month, in recognition and celebration of that singular event, we are studying the five solas of the Reformation. That is the five 
statements, titles, if you will, that summarize the theological and biblical convictions of the Reformers. We, we've already studied two, sola scriptura and solus Christus, that is, Scripture alone and Christ alone. You'll remember the problem was that the church had elevated itself to the level actually over Scripture, claiming to be the inspired and errant authority over all Christians. And the Reformers said, no. Scripture alone is our inspired and errant authority. As proof, they demonstrated that many popes and councils in the past had erred rather significantly. More than that, many teachings of the church were in direct conflict with the Scripture. So, who were people to to believe? The church... Or the Bible? Well, it was really no problem since the people didn't have a Bible. Reformers did, which they translated and made available to people because, under the threat of death, because the Reformers said the Bible is our only final rule, not only our final rule of faith and practice. The church receives its authority from the Bible, not the other way around. Further, the church claimed to be the custodians of grace, and through their sacramental system, people could earn the infused righteousness of Christ and thereby justifying grace. Keep the sacraments, keep our system, and you'll earn grace resulting in ultimate salvation. There was a Catholic theologian of the 15th century, you don't have to write this down, This will not be on the final exam. I'm just throwing this in. There was a Catholic theologian of the 15th century who clarified this teaching. His name was Gabriel Biel, whose work was entitled Canon of the Mass, and it became part of every priest, every monk's education to include Martin Luther. Biel wrestled with how a person could attain a statement, I mean, a state of grace and formulated this idea of a of a pactum, that is a pact, a pact between God and man. The idea was that God committed himself to bestow grace on those who, ready, did what was in them, quote. That is, they did their, they they, they did, you do your best and I'll give you what you need. Do, Do your best in the sacraments and God will do his part and bestow grace. We hear it today like God helps those who helps themselves. That's anathema. Reformers said no. Christ and his finished work alone is our salvation. It is not to be earned by keeping sacraments. Christ alone in his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection as the perfect Son of God provided the all-sufficient means of our justification. Concerning this teaching, Martin Luther wrote in Thesis 16 of the 95 Theses, aren't you glad we're not going through all 95? Thesis 16 of the 95 Theses, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him, see, he's, he's, he's contradicting Biel, adds sin to sin, so that he becomes doubly guilty. 
You trying to do anything with what's in you? I got news for you. You got nothing in you. That brings us then this morning to sola gratia or grace alone. Following our outline for each of these weeks, 16th century context of sola gratia, the, the biblical basis, and then the 21st century context of sola gratia. I'm just going to intermix them today just so you know that. It's, it's probably becoming obvious by now that these five solas or five onlys overlap a bit. They're interconnected, of course. Because, you'll remember I said a couple of weeks ago, the central issue of the Protestant Reformation was justification. That is, how is a person justified? How is a person made right before God? The Roman Catholic Church was, and frankly still teaches, works through their sacramental system in order to be saved. Now, to be clear, if you ask a Catholic today, do you believe the grace of Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, they will uh, undoubtedly say yes. But it is their definition of grace that presents the challenge. They suggest that by His work on the cross, Jesus provides the grace you need in order to perform the sacraments necessary in order to receive infused righteousness of Christ in order thereby to receive justification. Catch the significant eternal difference. The Reformers said, Jesus did everything that we need in Christ alone because of His unique identity as the the very Son of God and His all-sufficient work on the cross is is by which we are saved. So while we may use the same words, while we may both say we are saved by grace, there is a vast difference in our understanding of grace. Now, we've, we've already talked a bit about the 16th century context of grace. Um, the, the church taught you receive grace in, um, in order to cooperate with the work of Christ in order to be justified. Of course, you, dirty, rotten scoundrels, you can't do enough works of satisfaction, so it's purgatory uh, for you where you will pay pay the remainder of your debt. The reformer said, there is no way that you can pay your debt. It is only through God's free gift. Notice, Free gift. That's a bit of a redundancy. The word gift in the Scripture speaks of that which is free. We, we, I guess, technically speak of it that way. We give gifts, but let's just be honest. At Christmas time, sometimes we buy gifts for people who we know are going to buy gifts for us, so it's not really free, is it? It's only through God's free gift of grace alone, through faith alone, in the all-sufficient work of Christ alone that we are justified. Now, before we get to the biblical basis of grace alone, let me say this, jumping ahead to the 21st century context of of grace alone. Even though we are Protestants who deny purgatory, it's not to be found in the Bible, just to be clear, I, I would suggest that many, perhaps some of you, still have your own version of Protestant purgatory. What, what do I mean? 
You live under doubt and uncertainty about your sins. Putting yourself through purgatory on earth, some of you are are plagued and suffer with the following questions. See if any of these hit home. Has Jesus really forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future? You ever had that question? I I felt sorry for my sin, but have I felt sorry enough? Have I been cleansed or do I need to pay or be punished in some way? Have I asked forgiveness for all my sins? Have I forgotten some? What if I have? Is there some kind of Protestant penance I must make to get him to really forgive me. I know I've asked a hundred times to be forgiven of this or that. How many times does it actually take? Back to the booth you go. Does God hold my past against me? Are there sins I have committed that Jesus won't forgive? What about that I've heard about this unpardonable sin. Have I done it? Is it possible to commit some sin or live in such a way so as to lose my salvation and therefore have to pay for my sin? Have you ever wondered that? Have you lost it? Are you desperately trying to regain it? Given my sinful life, can I really have the assurance of forgiveness and eternal life? You see, this was the underlying thread during the Protestant Reformation. There was no such thing as assurance. I told the truth, Scott. I I don't really struggle with the idea of purgatory. I struggle with God really forgiving me. I... I struggle with the prospect of eternal purgatory called hell. The answers to these questions, all of these questions, are answered in the five solos of the Reformation. More importantly, they are answered decidedly in the Bible. You see, the Reformers are not our ultimate authority either. The Scripture is. But these biblical theological convictions consistent with Scripture decidedly answer all of these questions. So so what do we mean by grace alone? We, We typically hear that grace defined is the unmerited favor of God, and, and that is true. Please notice it is unmerited, that is, unearned. There is nothing any of us can do to earn the favor, attention, or grace of God. Grace indeed is a free gift of God's unearned favor resulting in our salvation. Grace alone means nothing the sinner does commends him 
to the grace of God, nor does the sinner cooperate with God in order to merit salvation. Salvation from beginning to end, listen very carefully, is the sovereign gift of God to the unworthy and undeserving. Say that again. Salvation from beginning to end, justification, is the sovereign gift of God to the unworthy and the undeserving. I was talking with someone recently who said, I feel like I was mistakenly given an invitation to a place I don't belong. It's true of all of us. But do not for a minute think because I speak of grace as free that it is cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, dealt with that. In his book, Grace Alone, Carl Truman tells of watching a news program recently where a prominent evangelical pastor, I mean, I'm talking a PCA, that's a good denomination, was interviewed about a new book just published on grace. Truman says the author spent about eight minutes talking about grace but never actually defined it. In fact, he said, he never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Is it possible to talk about grace apart from Christ? Truman says that many would have come away from that interview having the impression that, quote, grace is simply a divine sentiment, a decision or a tendency in God to overlook sin as an overindulgent parent might when dealing with a naughty child. Grace seems to be nothing more than God turning a blind eye to, a, to human rebellion. Now, just overlook that. It says if grace is a free pass to do whatever one chooses, but... He concludes, grace is far more than the mere attitude or sentiment of God. God does not, to be clear, does not turn a blind eye to human rebellion. In fact, he tackles it head on in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God alone, I mean, grace alone finds its definition, its basis, its fullness in Christ alone. And the purchase of our eternal salvation was neither cheap nor free. It cost God the enormous price of the suffering and death of His own Son. We should not sing amazing grace without being humbled. Any discussion of the grace of God must begin and end with Jesus. Truman says, the supreme manifestation of God's grace in history is Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Christ purchased this grace at a cost to which we cannot attach a price, but at which we can only marvel in terrified awe. Remembering Jonathan Edwards' very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, speaks of God holding the sinner by a slender thread over 
hell and it is only his grace, his mercy that keeps him from severing the thread at any moment. We can't preach that anymore. Grace is intimately connected to the fact that human beings are fallen and therefore deserve only the wrath and judgment of God. Grace is God's response to our rebellion whereby He chooses to bless those who have rejected Him. There is nothing in us. You are not a diamond in the rough. There is nothing in us to warrant that response. It is purely the grace of God. And yet that response of grace does not lead him to overlook sin. That would betray and contradict his own perfect, holy nature. He indeed does feel holy anger and wrath towards sin and will not simply pardon our rejection of his kingship and right to rule our lives. But in grace, motivated by love, shaped by holiness, he deals with our sin at greatest cost to himself. Any discussion of grace must include sacrifice. This is not man reaching up to God. This is God reaching down to man. Are we beginning to understand the nature of grace? Our understanding of grace must begin with a confession of the magnitude of our rebellious sin and God's holy aversion to it. So this isn't making me feel, feel very good. It's not supposed to. What is the biblical basis of grace alone? A couple of very important passages. First, Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned, no exception, and fall short of the glory of God. That's the manifest display of His glorious perfections. Fall short of that, even though created in His image. So, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Do you understand that Christianity is a bloody religion? Everyone has sinned, finds themselves under the just, the just condemnation of God, but justification, that is, having a right standing before God comes as a free gift by His grace. It is not something earned. It is something that Jesus earned, that He purchased for us, a gift of His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus 
paid the price to buy us out of the slave market of sin. Not only is there nothing we can do but, or ever could do, but Jesus has already paid the price in full through the all-sufficiency of his work, having been publicly displayed as a propitiation. I know that some modern translations don't have the word propitiation. If your Bible in your lap doesn't have propitiation, throw it away. Propitiation is a sacrifice by which God's righteous wrath was averted in His blood. It's important we understand the flow of Paul's argument here in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, he tells us he's going to write about the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We need the gospel, he starts with, because the wrath of God, chapter 1, verse 18, has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, who, who is that? Well, he spends the next three chapters telling us who it is. He proves that it is everybody, whether you are the ungodly, immoral pagan or a really moral person feeling good about yourself, or even if you are a religious person, there is none righteous, not one sums up his argument in chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth is stopped, whole world is accountable before God. Guilty. That's the judgment. But now, right, the wrath of God has been revealed, chapter 1, chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, a righteousness that is apart from keeping any law of doing good to include any sacramental system. A righteousness is found through faith in Jesus Christ. For, the text I read a moment ago, everybody has sinned and, and, and fallen short of God's glory, but God's righteousness is revealed from heaven in justifying sinners who by grace, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, are declared righteous by grace through faith. In other words, it is not what you do, you can't. You can't even cooperate with the work of Christ. You can't. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2 makes this point abundantly clear. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you were spiritually dead to the things of God. Paul's point is, there's nothing that we could do about our condition. Dead, that's who we were in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That's who you walked with. Spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. This describes you. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature, our very nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. This is the universal condition of humanity. All of sin, you see, and fall short of his glory. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, unable to do anything about our condition, dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at this. So that in the ages to come, how long is that? That's a long time. 
In the ages to come, he might show, he might demonstrate, he might display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard that you are trophies of his grace? This is where it comes from. Whenever anybody has a question about God's grace, he's going to point at you. <laughs> trophies of God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. Nothing you could do. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you won't get to heaven and be able to say, I'm really glad that you sent Jesus to die, but I'm really glad that I believed. It is not the result of any work that we have done, but salvation is a free gift of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. We were condemned. We were cursed rightly because we were in rebellion. But Jesus took that sin from us. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Romans 8 then says, there is therefore now, because of this truth, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ died for our sins, taking the curse of the law that was against us and removed it such that there is now nor never will be any condemnation against us. So no purgatory for you. So, the 21st century context, our context, your context, I want you to consider some of those plaguing questions I asked earlier that no doubt have kept some of you awake at night. Has Jesus really forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future? Well, when Jesus died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago, which sins did he die for? All of them. So that when you were saved, your sins were removed. All of them. The reason we continue to confess our sins when we sin is to restore the fellowship, never the relationship. The relationship is forever settled. It's never broken. God is your Father and always will be. Your sin is removed. You are clothed right now in the righteousness of Christ seated with him in the heavenlies. I felt sorry, but have I felt sorry enough? I want to be careful how I say this. I believe that there is a place for contrition and repentance for sin. In fact, I believe that is necessary. But your forgiveness is not based on the depth of your sorrow, but on the work of Jesus Christ when he bore your sin. Have I been cleansed or do I need to pay or be punished in some way? Jesus took your guilt, your corresponding punishment, and condemned your sin in his flesh. It has been fully satisfied. Here's my question. What is left to pay? I'm not going to take time to answer all those questions. A couple more. Is it possible to commit some sin or live in such a way so as to lose my salvation? That's a big one, isn't it? 
And I know that there are godly people who disagree on this point. But I want to say firmly, since salvation is by grace through faith, how is it, pray tell, that since you didn't do anything to get your salvation, that you can do anything to lose your salvation? Your salvation is based on His work, not yours. And since your sins were forgiven, all of them, past, present, and future, since He took your punishment and condemned your sin, what is left for you to do that will not be forgiven? I know. This does not lead to a life of sin. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 6. May it never be. Knowing we cannot lose our salvation does not lead to a life of sin. It leads to a life of grateful, spirit-filled obedience. So, again, I know there are a lot of godly people who disagree on this, but can I say to you, based on the nature of justification, that you are eternally saved. Last. Given my sinful life, can I really have the assurance of forgiveness in eternal life? You don't know the way that I've lived. Can I really be sure? I want to say to you, by the authority of God's word and the finished work of the Son of God in the flesh, on the cross, his offering for your sin was complete. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your salvation is eternal, irrevocable, and final. Rest in this truth once and for all. Uh, once and for all, there is now nor never will be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what if I, what if I'm out of Christ? Jesus is the one who put you in him, and he will not put you out. He will lose none of those that he has called. 1515, 1516, before he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door, Luther taught through the book of Romans in the University of Wittenberg. During that time, he wrote of Romans the whole task of the Apostle Paul and of his Lord is to humiliate the proud and to bring them to a realization of this condition, to teach them that they need grace, to destroy their own righteousness so that in humility they will seek Christ and confess that they are sinners and thus receive grace and be saved. In other words, the condition for receiving the grace of God is coming to the realization that you don't deserve it. That you are dead in your sins and nothing merits God's grace. Remember I said earlier, finally, in conclusion, all those words you're looking for, through his attempts to gain righteousness, through his incessant sacramental works of satisfaction, Luther hated the righteousness of God. But as he taught through Romans, his life was forever changed. Through his laborious studies of the Scripture, Luther came to see the guilt that consumed him could not be 
lifted by more religion. And the God he dreaded so much was not the God Christ came to reveal. From the book of Romans, another thunderclap crossed his path as he writes, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by his faith. And I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be born and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became, became to me a gate to heaven. God utterly saves those who realize they are utterly unable to do anything to save themselves. The bridge between God and man is grace built solely by the cross of Christ because it is grace alone. Stand for prayer. Father, my, my intent this morning was certainly, certainly to give some bad news. And, and that is that we were in horrible rebellion against you. But then to follow that with the very good news of the grace of Jesus Christ so that anyone here not saved may be saved. So that those here already saved, will rest in the assurance that the finished cross of Jesus Christ brings in grace alone. Do your work, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.